Welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliant management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Today, we are so pleased to have Shannon DeConda, a doctor's management partner and the founder and president of NamUs, National Alliance of Medical Accreditation Specialists, an organization that provides education for medical documentation, auditing, compliance, and exam preparation for the AAPC's National Auditing Credential, CPMA, the Certified Professional Medical Auditor. Shannon brings more than 16 years of medical specialty auditing and coding experience to doctor's management clients. Using her coding and auditing expertise, she helps practices optimize business processes and maximize reimbursements. Shannon identifies missed revenue opportunities for clients as well as coding habits that may put the practice at risk. Shannon then trains practice providers and staff based on their specific areas of need, empowering them with techniques that help them receive full and timely reimbursement for all the services provided to patients. Her clients often realize improvements in cash flow as a result of the insight and education they receive. Through her work at NamUs, Shannon creates medical auditing training programs that are delivered across the country by a team of experts. The programs and curriculums reflect Shannon's hands-on training philosophy and create an easy-to-learn atmosphere in the classroom. Shannon and her NamUs team of instructors have trained nearly 3,000 medical auditors, including recovery auditor contractors, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services auditors, and Department of Justice auditors. A copy of the slide deck is available for download by clicking on the handout icon on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions on the question icon on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your Paycom CEU certificate will be emailed to you from Paycom following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Shannon, go ahead. Well, good afternoon, and thank you again for having me as part of your educational series. I'm happy to be here. Um, as mentioned, I'm Shannon DeConda with NamUs, and today we're going to talk about how complex ENM is. Um, before we do that, there's a couple of little flags here on the opening slide, and one says perform regular audits. You know, we have to make sure that we're looking at our documentation on an ongoing basis and we're making sure that it is as compliant as it can be. If a carrier is constantly looking at your, at, at your documentation, it would make sense that you should as well. Kind of as a joke, it says here, you provide routine maintenance to your car, what about your documentation? Your car enables you to get back and forth to work every day. 
Well, your documentation ensures you're paid for what you're doing by going to your job. So it just makes sense to make sure that you're having um, routine audits to ensure that you have the best documentation you can. The second one there, educate wisely. There are a lot of compliance professionals, auditors, educators, consultants in the industry who tell people things and they scratch their head and they go, that just sounds odd to me. Well, it could be. It could be that somebody is giving you their opinion or interpretation about a rule as opposed to the actual rule. So my suggestion is, whether it's your speaker today, myself, or any other speaker, if you hear something that makes you scratch your head and go, hmm, ask for where it is in documentation guidelines or Medicare publications in order to ensure that the information that you're receiving is accurate and timely as well. So what are we going to learn today in today's session? Well, first of all, we're going to talk about documentation pitfalls. We're going to talk about what we need to be concerned with on our documentation. Then we're going to move into medical necessity. Yes, we're actually going to discuss medical necessity, how you choose your levels of service based on medical necessity, and how they impact E&M documentation. And then lastly, we'll also discuss complexity of care as it relates to the services that are performed within your organization. So first, we want to turn our focus to an odd kind of a concept, defensive coding skills. What in the world do we mean by a practice should have good defensive coding skills. Well, the thing is, is the most common build code, as we all know, is 99213 in the office. A 99213 pays on average a whopping, please note the sarcasm in my voice, $73 per encounter. So if our provider sees four patients an hour, eight patients a day, that's 32 patients, that is, again, a whopping $2,336 per provider for a day in clinic. Well, if you think about risks involved, and I'm not talking about medical legal liability or any of that right now, I'm talking about compliance with your documentation and your coding. When you think of the worst penalties we have, that's the False Claims Act. Under the False Claims Act, we would have triple the claim amount, penalties up to $11,000 per claim, a $25,000 penalty, and oh, don't forget about that potential of five years in jail, all to make your day that you are being reimbursed at $2,336 now a potential liability of over $40,000. This is why we need to have defensive coding skills. We need to understand how we need to document, how we need to present the complexity of the patient in order to ensure our documentation not only meets what it needs to from a documentation guideline standpoint, but also from a complexity of care and medical necessity stance as well. So we need defensive coding because if you actually think about documentation, there are three people that are most commonly involved with the note, the documentation, and the encounter itself. We obviously have the physician or the non-physician provider who is performing the work. And then we have the coder who is usually an evaluator of that documentation. And then we have the auditor who's coming in to ensure that overall things are being done in a compliant manner. Now, when you think about how these three individuals look at documentation and services, 
they look at things completely in a different way. If we think about how the physician views things, the physician is going to be looking at the work that was involved in creating that patient encounter. And look, that absolutely makes sense. Don't you value your work and how much work and time and effort you put behind something? Well, that's all a physician is doing. They're valuing the work that they've done behind an encounter. And that's why a lot of patients that they spend a lot of time with or a lot of work with, they want to build those as level fives, even though maybe their condition doesn't meet a level five. But it's because of how much work went behind treating that patient. Then we have the perspective of the coder. When a coder is evaluating services, they are trained, typically, to focus on documentation content only. By focusing on the documentation content only, sometimes documentation can be overscored or underscored because they're not taking into consideration the medical necessity. Now, the reason why, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, coders and physicians are rarely ever taught medical necessity, and we'll discuss why that is in just a little bit. However, when we think about the auditor, Auditors are trained that medical necessity is the key reason. It is the overarching criterion in why we do it, how we do it, and what we document about it. So these three people who are the gatekeepers of documentation and the encounter all view things very differently. But ironically, they all three need to be able to come to the same level of service determination about an encounter documentation. So when we think about that, let's think about complications that arise when it comes to these points. A lot of times our physicians and non-physician providers come from a standpoint of, well, you should know why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's implied. Unfortunately, auditors are not allowed to assume or interpret within documentation. As a matter of fact, Medicare states that the provider is tasked with painting a portrait of the patient every single encounter that provider has with the patient. In order for the provider to paint an accurate portrait, we need to ensure that there is no room for interpretation or misunderstanding of what was accomplished between that physician and the patient on that given date of service. Now, let me ask you, does all of this make sense? We have providers who have been forced into using EMR systems. They've been forced through Medicare and the different regulations that we have now. I actually work with quite a few physicians who have made the decision to not go into the world of EMR, but if you look at MACRA and MIPS and how that's gonna impact them financially in the future, that is a big financial gamble. 1% every year and it compounds and there's no ceiling on that limit. So when we think about does this make sense to the physicians, it doesn't because they've been taught for years and years documentation guidelines and they're also taught in medical school that their documentation should be a point of communication on continuity of care between that provider and other providers who may come behind them and view the documentation. 
Unfortunately, what has happened in our industry is providers have become, excuse me, carriers have become reliant on the documentation of the providers. And documentation has now began to supersede even the care of the patient and what's going on with the patient. As we move into different phases of healthcare, this will probably, again, remain to be one of the biggest areas of hurdles for our providers is we're going to be required to have them document more and more and be more and more specific as to what's going on with their patients. Think about it this way. If I've met you before and I come up and, and we start talking about how you're doing now, a provider is not allowed to do that on a patient encounter. First of all, the provider is expected to regurgitate to paint the portrait of the patient, everything that's in that medical record into today's encounter. And I think we have to sit back at some point and think, does that really make sense? If we already have it documented and it's in the main medical record, why does our provider have to continue to document it over and over, visit to visit? It's the same information. However, if we allowed providers to refer to that whole entire medical record, now our whole entire medical record could be the subject of an audit based on one single data service or one episode of care. So it's kind of a double-edged sword on which way is better and which way is worse. When we think about our documentation that we get out of EMRs these days, what's happened over the years is EMR kind of takes the humanity out of the visits. It focuses more on ensuring documentation guidelines are met than showing the medical necessity and the complexity behind treating that patient. And you know, again, if you put yourself in the physician's chair for a minute. I've been in this industry longer than I want to admit because then it shows how old I am. And you know that already by seeing how old my kids are. So let's leave how long I've been in healthcare to the side for a minute and let's think about when we look at how we've educated physicians all these years, our focus has been on, hey doc, every patient, every time, 4-HPI, 10 review of systems, 3 past family and social history, eight-point body system exam. We've taught them all these years to over-document. Now their EMR comes in and creates that over-documentation for them. And now we've trained them, that's what we need, so now they feel they have their seatbelt on. And what's happened is in that time, Medicare has come in and said, well, we're gonna change the game a little bit on you. And here's your proof. Here on your screen, you see the um, Medicare Claims Processing Manual from 2003. On the other side of the screen, you see the Medicare Claims Processing Manual from 2016. There's a huge difference in this section labeled Selection of Level of E&M Service. We're going to start here. The physician in 2003, the physician must have provided all of the services necessary to meet the CPT description of the level of service build. Hmm. 
So in 2003, Medicare had clear guidance. We're looking at you to meet the CPT descriptor. If we go to the CPT descriptor, by the way, that's the one that shows us we need an expanded problem focus history or a detailed level exam and those types of elements. So it was based on documentation of the encounter. Well, in 2016, they changed the game, but they didn't send out a memo. They didn't send out a warning. They didn't have any type of a Medicare claims rep come to your office and inform you. But what they did change it to say is medical necessity of a service is the overarching criterion for payment in addition to the individual CPT codes. Huh. So now we have to meet this mysterious thing called medical necessity along with the CPT code descriptor. Go to the next sentence. It would be necessary or, excuse me, it would not be medically necessary or appropriate to bill a higher level of E&M service when a lower level of service is warranted. The volume of documentation should not be the primary influence upon which a specific level of service is billed. But the interesting thing is I don't know that I know of a single EMR system on the market right now that takes that medical necessity component into consideration with the CPT code descriptor. But EMR is the main way we document our notes. So the problem is, is we have to make sure that our providers understand it's not just documentation. It also has to do with the medical necessity and then we have to be able to explain to them what medical necessity is, what it means, and how to interpret it. When we look at documentation guidelines that we've had, we all know they're 1995 and 1997. They're over 20 years old. And they've not been modified over these years to conform to our EMR processing, how we treat patients these days. A lot's changed in 20 years. If you've been paying attention to any of the email blasts and everything, you'll know that they are requesting comments. Well, they were. The comment period is closed. But they were requesting comments about a potential change in some of the documentation guidelines. It'll be interesting to see if we see those changes come about. There was a lot of comments posted. And by the way, you can still read those comments that were posted. CMS documentation guidelines also does not address medical necessity, even though they say it should be the overarching criterion in, in your code selection. If you pull up CMS EM documentation guidelines, essentially all they did was put their wrapper around 1995 and 1997 documentation guidelines. It's really just the same thing. If you go to the AMA CPT guidance and look for any type of CPT guidance, there's no, nothing documented on medical necessity. Coding and billing training. No one ever teaches coders or billers what medical necessity is. Physicians in training. Physicians going to a lot of these documentation symposiums. No one teaches medical necessity to them. But yet it's supposed to be the overarching criterion. How can we expect to meet what we need to for our documentation if we're not teaching appropriately what medical necessity is and how to reach it? So first of all, let's form the basis of what is medical necessity.
The best way to define medical necessity is why. Why did you, the provider, walk in the room with the patient today? Why did you do an EKG on the patient? Why did you order a chest x-ray? Medical necessity is defining the why behind the encounter in treating that patient. That why should then go to explain the complexity associated with caring for that patient. And it says up here, non-clinician review. When we talk to providers about evaluation of their medical necessity, a lot of times they come up and they're like, you're not a clinician. How can you assess the medical necessity of my encounter? We're not looking at your medical care. That's not our job. If we need your medical care to be evaluated, we'll get peer-to-peer -peer review. But we're looking for the complexity of care that the provider documented and chose to document about treating that patient. Unfortunately, once that door is shut, the only person that knows what goes on is the provider, the patient, and potentially a scribe or a medical assistant that was in the room. The carrier, and this kind of sounds corny, but and the documentation of the encounter does not know what went on behind that door unless the physician is willing to document what went on behind that door. So when we evaluate the medical necessity of his encounter or her encounter, we are not judging clinical care. We are not judging what went on behind that door. And if you're an auditor or a coder, for that reason, you do not need to step over a line of telling a provider, you shouldn't have done this, you didn't need to do this review of systems, you didn't need to do this exam. That is not our job. We are not clinicians. We're basing our decisions on according to how you documented the complexity of treating this patient how significant, how severe was their problem to treat. When we think about medical necessity, and I showed you just a moment ago what CMS has published in the Claims Processing Manual as to the medical necessity of an encounter within the ENM, it's interesting that Medicare never says 1 plus 1 equals 2 when you score medical necessity. That's why most people don't educate and train providers, coders, and billers on medical necessity because there's actually no published guidance. I will tell you there, there are two MAC carriers or Medicare administrators who have made some type of publication and, and they tried, they honestly tried, and that was Novitas and CGS Medicare. I love what Novitas had to say and it's here on your slide for you because it says medical necessity cannot be quantified using a points system. It's determined with culminating factors, many factors in treating that patient day to day. It cannot be the same from patient to patient or visit to visit. That is so straightforward and what we're looking for as it relates to medical necessity of the encounter. It still doesn't give us a one plus one equals two as a yardstick to measure medical necessity, but what it does do is tell us what we should take into consideration when we are evaluating the medical necessity of the encounter.
So what we have done is put together a backbone, if you will, in how to get to the medical necessity of an encounter. And we've done that by evaluating the presenting problem of the patient according to a stated risk, according to documentation guidelines, of that patient. So to make it easier to teach this concept, I'm going to ask you to mentally divide patients that are seen in the practice into two categories, chronic problems and acute problems. So we're going to start with our patients that have a chronic problem. If that patient has a chronic stable problem, they would be considered a level three. If the provider chooses that he or she feels that that patient should be billed as a level four, then the documentation needs to demonstrate how that chronic problem is exacerbated. If the provider wants to build that patient as a level five, then the documentation must indicate how that chronic problem is severely exacerbated. Guys, and that's not in the future, that's not tomorrow, that is today during today's encounter. As a matter of fact, the way documentation guidelines defines that is it says there, there is chronic severity right now or imminent threat between today's visit and the next time you would see this patient. So for those reasons, you can see it is a progression. As the patient's problem gets more serious, more complex, our level of service increases. So before we move to the acute patient, let's walk through an example of a stable problem. I have a patient that comes in today and they have diabetes and it's chronic and stable. They would be a level three. If the provider feels that that patient should be billed as a level four, then I'm looking for the documentation to point to how that diabetes was exacerbated today. Maybe the documentation indicates that the patient is having problems maintaining control over their sugars, their, their sugars are fluctuating at mealtime, those are the types of things, and then we would expect to probably see that the physician is making some type of modification or further testing on the patient to see how bad their sugars are not stable at this time. Our last category, chronic and severely exacerbated. Maybe our patient comes in, a little bit of an exaggeration here, and they have a 500 sugar today. Look, I can't assume that patient's laying comatose on the floor because they have a 500 sugar, because I can guarantee you walking around somewhere, there's someone skipping and jumping and has a 500 sugar. So the provider has to define for us that that is a severe exacerbation of that chronic problem. Again, it walks up a scale of complexity, growing in each time, and not only complexity of treating the patient, but also in disease process of the chronic problem. So let's turn our focus now to the acute problem. The acute uncomplicated problem would be our level three. If the provider feels that patient should be billed as a level four, their documentation should demonstrate how that acute problem is complicated. If the provider feels that patient should be billed as a level five, we're looking for the documentation to demonstrate how that patient has threat to life or bodily function today during today's encounter. So again, the easiest way to define these is to walk through another example. If I have a child that comes into the office today and they have an upper respiratory infection, 
that would be my acute uncomplicated problem. If my provider documents that that acute problem of upper respiratory infection is now being complicated because that child has asthma and now the asthma is exacerbated, now I have a complicated acute problem. If my child comes in today and they are having problems moving air in their lungs, they're retracting, we're giving multiple JetNeb treatments in the office just to try to get some air movement, now I have a level five. But you see the difference is, again, and I like to use this specific wording, what the provider chooses to document. Because this truly is a choice. They know what happened in that room. And unfortunately, documentation is the key to getting paid, to when you get audited to not have your money recouped. It is the key to everything. So we talked about this level four being an upper respiratory infection with asthma. My provider can't just put asthma in past medical history and expect that as an auditor, I can assume that asthma is complicating treating the URI. I'm not a clinician, but I would assume, although I'm not supposed to, that not always when someone has a URI is the asthma complicating it unless the URI is significant and causing those types of issues. That is why the provider must paint a portrait of the patient. We don't know how severe that patient's problem was unless the provider chooses to tell us through the documentation how complex their problem was. Then we talked about our level five. Again, a lot of times when you think of documentation we've seen on patients that have URI and asthma, and we're doing JetNeb treatments, a lot of times we'll see assessment, URI asthma, plan, multiple JetNeb treatments were given in the office. If patient doesn't get any better, they're to report to the emergency room. And it's not painting the portrait of that threat to life or bodily function of the patient during the encounter today. I had a provider tell me one time when I was going over this thought process with them. Actually, that's what he said. So essentially, you just want me to document my thought process. And unfortunately, they shouldn't have to, but they do. In order to define the medical necessity, showing the complexity of treating those patients, we really need them to tell us their thought process through the documentation. Now, when we think about medical necessity, this doesn't just apply to patients that are seen in the outpatient clinic setting. This also applies to our inpatient services as well. So when we think about the medical necessity of our inpatient services, again, it's going to go on a scale of complexity. Patients who demonstrate a level three, I would be expecting the documentation to show me that this patient and you'll forgive my non-clinician language here, needs major tweaking to try to get them to a more stable state. Please notice I didn't say a stable state, I said a more stable state. Because a level two are gonna be those patients that, okay, we've been doing the major tweaking, There's, we're starting to see some improvement, we're starting to see them head towards that more stable state, but they're still not there yet. A level one is, my patient's sitting on the side of the bed eating jello. So again, it shows that level of severity and progression of their disease process. 
So we're just looking for the documentation to define what the provider did on that given data service for the patient. And by the way, you'll notice that in all of these examples, it's new and established. It's initial and it's subsequent. That's because the level of service on this is not designated by whether the patient is new on your medical necessity and complexity of care. Whether they are new or established, that falls with documentation guidelines. It would not fall within the interpretation of the medical necessity of that patient encounter. Now, again, when we think about coding versus auditing, we've already mentioned that a lot of the training does not provide educational medical necessity, which is what we really need. When we look at how coders and billers are trained, and even some auditors, look, auditor, not all auditing teaching platforms teach medical necessity. So instead, what coders, billers, and auditors are sometimes trained is mark the box. If you see the HPI, mark the box. And the problem is, again, it's trying to paint the medical necessity, the portrait of those patients. We represent one of the largest areas in healthcare that has the most on-the-job trained individuals. That's fantastic. I've been in this industry for, I've never worked in anything other than healthcare. And I started it out as check-in, check-out girl and moved my way up through the process, through the, the pecking order, if you will, of a physician office till I superseded and went into the consulting world and the auditing world. I say that because if it weren't for on-the-job training, I don't know how far I would have made it. We are so lucky that we have mentors in coding and billing who are willing to put their arm around you and say, let me help you. As great as that is, we also have to understand that sometimes the way we get on-the-job training isn't always accurate training. I'll give you an example. When I was trained on the job, moving the fence from uh, working denials and working in the billing to actually auditing services, I was taught that H-E-E-N-T, head, eyes, ears, nose, throat, when documented on an exam was five organ systems that I should be counting head, eyes, ears, nose, throat. Well, no. Head is a body area, first of all, but eyes and ENT, that's two organ systems, one body area. So there's probably a lot of charts that once upon a time I audited and coded incorrectly because of on-the-job training. Again, I'm saying on-the-job training is fantastic, but we have to go back to, okay, what are the rules? Just because Millie has been here for 23 years doesn't always mean Millie is right. We have to make sure that the guidance we're getting and the training we're getting from others in the industry is accurate and, and separate our fact from fiction on a lot of the issues. So let's take this whole idea of medical necessity, complexity of care, and relate it to the E&M encounter. When we think about considerations within our documentation, first of all, we have a lot of concerns, and there are some concerns when it comes to different types of documentation. There are different concerns that we have over a handwritten note. Is it legible? If it's one of those handwritten templates that check check boxes, sometimes that's a little concerning, especially if they're not elaborating and relying only on the check checks. 
But at the same time, when you think about that, you have to understand that all an EMR is are those check, check paper boxes, but in an electronic format. Dictation. Oh my, how I miss dictated notes. They were always, okay, that was over-encompassing. Most of the time, they did a really good job of painting the portrait of the patient. But if you'll remember, a lot of times they lacked in what we needed from a documentation component standpoint. Copy and paste techniques. You know, if you think about this again from a provider standpoint, they're going to look at you and say, why do I have to regurgitate everything about this patient all over again? So they want to rely on what they were sold on in the EMR process, and that's the ability to copy and paste information from one encounter to the other. What does CMS have to stay, say on this standpoint? You're allowed to. What CMS says in their publication called the Program Integrity Guide for Electronic Health Records is that illegitimate, their word, not mine, illegitimate use of copy and paste would be considered inappropriate. Do they define illegitimate? Are you crazy? Of course they don't. So you have to create a policy within your organization of how much copy and paste is valid copy and paste. And those of you who are on a, I won't call the name, but specific EMR that will let you click copy of an entire note and paste into today, that can represent a lot of challenges. You have to put on two hats when you're evaluating that documentation. One of saying, if this was a Medicare audit, not Medicare Advantage plan, but a Medicare audit, they would tend to be focused on one note. And I couldn't necessarily see other notes. But also, we have to understand that overutilization of that copy and paste is wrong. So if you're targeted for that approach on an audit, you want to be able to be able to say, we have these policies in place, provider, we need you to do more of the actual encounter in your documentation. Now, please don't, don't conclude this webinar and think, Shannon completely condones copy and paste and even copy and pasting whole notes. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying because Medicare's guidance is gray, which they're gray on a lot of things, and uses a word like illegitimate use, for your organization, you need to define what you consider to be illegitimate use. Over-documentation of the encounter, we have this so much, as we've already mentioned, because of the EMR process. We've taught our providers, again, to document the max. So we get the max. The problem is, is sometimes, while there's no fines or penalties associated with over-documenting the note, what ends up happening is this over-documentation becomes distracting from the patient encounter. While not needed for critical care services, I was recently auditing a physician who, in his critical care services, would document a completely normal review of systems and a completely normal exam. Well, think about EMR documentation when it has all of this negative for hay fever, itchy, watery eyes. Is it possible that a critical care patient, based on those findings that the EMR puts, could have a normal review of systems and exam? It's possible. But my whole point is it distracted you from the thought process of the critical care encounter. You had to stop and think, huh, 
could a critically ill patient actually have a normal review of systems and exam? And again, those elements aren't even needed for critical care, but it's one of those situations of a provider over-documenting as a seatbelt method to their documentation process. The last point here is making it all relevant. We all know the SOAP note, subjective, objective, assessment, and plan. Subjective, the interview with the patient, finding out how severe their problem is according to them. The objective, the hands-on work of the provider examining the patient, reviewing labs, reviewing x-rays, that all leads into the A, the assessment of the note. If you think about what we get in our documentation under assessment these days, it's typically the diagnoses of the patient. And the problem is, is the diagnoses of the patient does not give us the physician's clinical assessment of that patient. So we actually need our providers to put the A back in the soap note. And then here comes the P, the plan of care. Okay, doc, now that you've identified your analysis and interpretation of the actual stated severity of the patient, what is the plan of approach on how you're going to treat this patient? That's what we're looking for within documentation to better demonstrate medical necessity and complexity of care. When we think about that, we have our E&M components to do that by. Our chief complaint telling why the patient came in to the, see the provider today. The HPI indicating the symptoms the patient's having because of their chief complaint. The review of systems to define how the body is affected systemically by the chief complaint. And then our past family and social history identifying problems that the patient may be having that we need to know about in order to best treat their problem. So let's start with our chief complaint. Again, the chief complaint should be identifying why the provider walked into the room with the patient on that given encounter. When we think about Medicare's wording on the documentation, on the chief complaint, they um, ask us to use the patient's own words. Now, if you think about that, I don't think Medicare literally means the patient's own words. A lot of patients don't really understand the whole concepts of why they're coming back into the office today. I don't know, he told me to come back today. And that doesn't make for such a good medical necessity of why the patient's here today. I think what Medicare's trying to get us to is when we note that the patient has frequency and burning on urination, that we're not documenting a chief complaint of UTI, that we're actually documenting what the patient's complaints are on that encounter. What's interesting is there's a lot of controversy over the chief complaint, but realistically, this is our rules. This is all the rules, pretty much, that we have on chief complaint. The chief complaint is a concise statement describing the symptom, problem, condition, diagnosis, physician recommended return, which would indicate that follow-up is actually a valid chief complaint. It's not what we want them to put as we've been talking all day about complexity of care and, and really showing the medical necessity of the patient, but we do have to consider that follow-up is actually a valid chief complaint. The medical record should clearly reflect the chief complaint. It doesn't say it must, it doesn't say it should, it, it doesn't say it must, it doesn't say it is required, it says it should. 
So we really need that chief complaint, but at the end of the day, as long as we can view the documentation and extrapolate why the patient came in to see the provider today, then we have what we need in order to support a chief complaint. On this slide, what I want to point out is when you look at this chief complaint, patient returns for six-month follow-up, the patient is doing well with her diabetes and reports no sugar spikes lasting greater than one hour since her last visit. If you ask the physician, you know, doctor, when you look at this patient, what do you consider to be the chief complaint? What is most important in this patient to you? A lot of them are going to tell you a six-month follow-up because they're going to find out that patient has diabetes. It's where's the patient in the cycle of I'm treating. And for that reason, there's actually some EMRs on the market that say reason for today's visit, chief complaint. Reason for today's visit would be six-month follow-up. Chief complaint would be diabetes. So again, for those reasons, there's just a little bit of a difference of opinion as to what actually represents a chief complaint in a lot of those instances. We move on to the HPI, which is identifying symptoms the patient's having because of their chief complaint. We're given the option of eight. The most our provider ever needs to document when using the HPI elements is four. And there's a lot of good ones here. I like to think of these as the mommy questions. When one of my kids comes to me and says, Mom, I don't feel good, what do you ask them? Where does it hurt? How long does it hurt? What have you done for it? What makes it hurt worse? You are creating HPI on your own children every time they come to you and say they don't feel good. That's exactly what we're trying to get from the provider's encounter with the patient. Quality. Quality is defining if the patient's problem is improving, stable, or worsening. Modifying factor. What has the patient done to try to make their problem better? Context, what was the patient doing when their signs or symptoms first began? Timing, when the patient's problem is affecting them the most? Severity, is the patient's problem uh, minor, severe, major? You can also use the pain scale here. Associated signs and symptoms, signs and symptoms the patient is now having because of their chief complaint. Duration, how long the patient has had that problem. And then last, location, where the actual problem is. And guys, they can't use an inferred location. If the patient's chief complaint is diabetes, you can't say that it's the endocrine system for location. And think of it this way, they've got eight options here. They only should use one to four. So we have plenty of other options to be able to use. Our provider can also document three chronic or inactive problems along with the status of those problems and that can count as a complete history and present illness as well. So all of these elements are working in tandem to try to identify how complex the patient's problem is today when we're treating them. So let's look at an example of an HPI. Patient seen today for hospital stay follow-up. She was admitted seven days ago for pneumonia and sepsis. She was discharged to home with no further complications as the problem resolved prior to discharge. No fever to report. There's a lot of physicians who would say, that's what I need. That's a complete HPI. It tells me everything I need to know to treat the patient. But think about what documentation is trying to say. Documentation, unfortunately, is not 
the physician showing what they needed to know to treat the patient today, but it's also elaborating on what did you do for the patient today. And in this form of a documentation of HPI, we don't have that. Now, if we look at a modified HPI somewhat, again, this is more than likely what happened behind that closed door, but if the provider didn't document it this way, then we don't know. Patient seen today for hospital stay follow-up. She was admitted for seven days for pneumonia and sepsis. She has been battling pneumonia now for 10 days. She has no chest pain. She says she has improved overall. She was discharged to home with no further complications as the problem resolved prior to discharge. No fever report. She is still taking her antibiotics with no complaints. Now we see in the documentation the provider still has that information that they need in order to best treat that patient, but now they've also documented information on that patient as to how that patient is actually doing today. So again, it goes through to demonstrate the complexity of care of treating that patient today during today's encounter. This is just a reminder to you that Medicare guidance, actually it's MAC guidance, your Medicare carriers, indicate that HPI is the work of the provider and should not be relegated to your ancillary staff. We know that 1995 and 1997 documentation guidelines specifically indicate that our ancillary staff, even the patient themselves, could document the review of systems and past family and social history. But it never indicates anything about the HPI. However, as I mentioned, a lot of the MACs have come out with their own specific guidance stating, yeah, no, we consider this to be the work of the physician. Now, if you have a scribe, please note that's a different situation because the scribe is documenting what they see, hear, and observe. So the physician would then be doing the HPI and the scribe merely documenting that information. This would be when a medical assistant comes, brings a patient back, and they do the HPI for the provider. And the interesting thing is, we all know back to the days of a lot of EMR implementation, a lot of the EMRs were actually training providers. Hey guys, look, you bring this EMR in, you have the, the nurse bring the patient back, they do the entire history for you, so when you walk in the door, you're ready to review it and start with the exam. And that is absolutely contradictory to what um, Medicare guidance is with in relationship to the HPI. Moving on, thinking about the review of systems, look, we have to give credit for the laundry list review of systems that were provided through the EMR templates. However, a lot of times they include contradictory information. And that doesn't do anything positive for the encounter except, again, distract from the complexity of care along with create concerns of potential legal liability for the provider. The carriers all allow, Trailblazer didn't, but they're no longer a Medicare carrier, they all allow the use of all other systems or negative. This would indicate that your provider is evaluating the patient to see how their organ systems are being affected by the chief complaint. So let me interpret that real quick. I know we're running out of time quickly, but when we think about the review of systems, and I come in today to be seen for back pain, and the provider says, hey, Shannon, are you having any numbness or tingling in your leg? 
And I say, you know, I actually am. I just didn't realize that that was part of my back pain. And he says, are you having any bowel or bladder dysfunction? And I say, thank goodness, no, I'm not. He has asked me probing questions about organ systems that could be directly impacted by my problem today. And then allowing the providers to finish querying the patient and then to say all other organ systems are negative. They're not being impacted by this problem. The problem here becomes when people don't want to allow all other systems are negative, it comes back to the point of not understanding truly what review of systems is supposed to do within the documentation. We mentioned earlier about um, individuals in the industry indicating that, well, I can't count that review of systems because it's not applicable to the chief complaint, or I can't count that uh, organ system on exam. Well, I have this slide in here because I want to show you this. This is directly from documentation guidelines. And just for a little bit of interpretation here, my problem pertinent review of systems requires one review of systems, my extended requires two, and my complete requires 10. So now that we've defined that, let's read this. A problem pertinent review of systems inquires about the system directly related to the problem in the HPI. So if I have one organ system, it needs to be directly related to my problem. Now, in an extended review of systems, it has that whole same beginning part of the sentence. Review of systems inquires about the system directly related to the problem identified in the HPI. But then it goes on to say, and a limited number of additional systems. Does it say those additional systems have to be applicable to the chief complaint? Absolutely not. It also says this down here in the complete category plus all additional body systems. So again, this is why if the provider documents a review of systems, it is our job to give them the credit for the review of systems that they've documented as work they've done through the encounter process. A lot of times providers in the past used to document, especially through free text and dictation, that the patient is doing well with no complaints. And I believe what they intend on is the review of systems. However, remember that as coders and auditors, we give credit for 0, 1, 2, or 10 within our review of systems category. And this does not identify any more thorough of a review of systems that we're allowed to give credit for within that, that area. Our past family and social history, I don't have much to say here, but what I, what I want to point out is, look, if the provider documents any past family and social history, we count it and give them credit. But one of the things that's missing in documentation is creating relevance in past family and social history. Taking past family and social history, and a good example is social history. When I come in to see the provider and I have back pain, is it more advantageous for him to know that I like a glass of wine at night versus I go to high impact training five times a week. That difference in social history can help identify the patient in a better perspective for showing the complexity of care associated with treating that patient. Now, when it comes to exam, again, we have to recognize that we are not clinicians. And this part is actually the work of the physician through the patient exam encounter process. So our best recommendations in this area is, look, I just want you to understand, Mr. Provider, 
that when you treat a patient and you're billing a 99213, Medicare is paying you to do two organ systems on exam. So when you continually document eight organ systems, you're over-documenting the note, and that's fine. I'm not asking that you not document work that you did, but what I'm asking you to consider is if Medicare says that a level three only needs two organ systems and you feel the need or you feel the clinical relevance of creating an eight-point body system exam on that patient, is maybe their complexity of care not appropriately represented in their documentation and actually they should be being billed as a higher level of service. So that's what we look at when it comes to the exam and trying to help our providers better understand the exam documentation process. When we think about 1995 documentation um, concerns, we have the organ systems versus the body area, which we're going to talk about on the next slide. Um, and then remember, within our documentation here, do you realize that really a provider can say that that organ system is negative or normal? There is no requirement under 95 that they do that laundry list analysis of negative 4, negative 4. Again, that's been an adaptation brought to us through the EMR process. When we think about that body area versus organ system, we have to make sure that auditors and coders in the industry understand that in 95, we are typically counting body, excuse me, organ systems as opposed to body areas. However, when that heading is a body area, there are typically organ system findings in that documentation. So in extremities, when my provider says that the patient has pitting edema, they have good range of motion, they have good pulses, and they have no scars or rashes, in that heading of extremities, I actually had four organ systems documented. And it's the same that it's that actual same way in several of the other body areas. And a lot of times this can cause notes to be downcoded. Neck is another good one. Your carotid bruise for cardiovascular, muscular skeletal and lymphatics. So again, helping our providers along with other coders and auditors to understand the difference and how to count those, and the problem is, is a lot of EMRs have the header set as the body area, which again could have organ system findings within them. Also, we do have the ability for our providers to use the 97 documentation guidelines um, as well. A lot of times this becomes very difficult because it is a lot of documentation, and then when you look at the scoring process, of these notes, the scoring process takes on a different complexity as well. So sometimes it's misunderstood. It's not, um, the documentation is not extensive enough to utilize 97, but be aware 97 is there and certainly able to be used. A couple of things just to note is our providers now under 97 have to be very specific with their documentation because they have to be able to meet those bullets under those organ systems. So we really need our providers to be very specific in their documentation when utilizing the 97 documentation guidelines.
Now as we move into the medical decision-making area of documentation and creating relevance and complexity there for our patient encounter, we know we have our three categories. The number of diagnoses that we're treating the patient for, the data reviewed, the work done essentially, and then the risk of the encounter. When it comes to the number of diagnoses, the big myth and problem here is we need our providers to understand they have to create relevance in the documentation for every diagnosis that they want us to count for that patient encounter. So if they're wanting us to count OA of the knee and diabetes, then in the documentation, the provider has to represent that he addressed OA of the knee and diabetes with that patient. They can list 22 diagnoses on an encounter, but if 22 diagnoses were not documented as discussed and relevant to that patient encounter, unfortunately, we're not able to give the provider credit for those diagnoses within the MDM. On the data and complexity of what was reviewed or ordered, look, typically the problem with this area for our providers is this is where we fail to get some of the documentation of what they actually did in the room with the patient. We need to make sure that we're always reviewing with our providers what they could be getting additional quote-unquote points for in this area and how that would enhance their documentation and showing that complexity. The last thing I want to cover is a couple of myths and misconceptions with relation to the table of risk. A lot of providers go to trainings and they hear prescription drug management as moderate level complexity and now they think every patient that they write a prescription for is magically a level four. We have to help our providers understand that the table of risk is but one part of MDM, MDM is but one part of the entire encounter, and just because we're writing prescriptions does not automatically mean we're going to get that level four encounter. Drugs for toxicity. There's a lot of drugs on the market that our providers have to monitor the patient for toxicity. What we have to help on this section is the guideline actually says uh, intense monitoring for toxicity not just monitoring for toxicity. So we would be looking for, the benchmark here I think which is a good one is go back to Coumadin. Patients that are on blood thinners, they have to come in every week to have their levels monitored. That would be intense monitoring. Risk factors, if a patient's going to surgery and they do have risk factors such as a comorbidity, we need our provider to identify that as a surgical area of concern and risk for that patient. Over-the-counter medications versus um, prescription, there are a lot of medications these days that are offered in both ways, over-the-counter and via Rx and higher doses. We have to make sure that our providers are properly indicating the dosage and or indicating that those were prescription level strength. And again, we don't have as much problem with that if they're using the EMR system for sending the prescriptions, but there are some EMR systems that don't do that. A good example is in an ophthalmology practice when they indicate that they've placed the patient on artificial tears. Artificial tears are over the counter, but they're also prescription strength. So we want to make sure that we can give the provider the credit that we want to through the documentation process. So at the end of the day, it's all up to the provider. I've used the phrase several times during this training today, it's all in what they choose to document. It's what they want 
the reader of the documentation to understand about that patient driving the complexity of treating that patient. So I hope today's presentation has given you some tools to use to go back to your physicians to help them to understand the differences between documentation guidelines and medical necessity and how to connect those components together for better documentation. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you, Shannon. I'm afraid we've run out of time today for any questions, but if you have any, um, if you could please use the contact form on the screen for any questions, or if you could send us any questions, we'll be sure to forward them on to Shannon. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you for joining us.